بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين وأفضل الصلاة وأتم التسليم على سيدنا محمد الصادق الأمين وعلى آله وصحبه ومن استنى بسنته إلى يوم الدين اللهم علمنا ما ينفعنا وانفعنا بما علمتنا وزدنا من فضلك علما وتعليما إنك على كل شيء قدير أما بعد Alhamdulillah, this is our session for Ask the Imam in November and we'll start straight away with the first question. The first question says, does Allah decrease barakah in a marriage that started from a haram relationship in which zina, fornication, had not been committed? I am considering a potential for marriage and I'm looking to meet with her wali, although I am worried since we committed some haram that Allah will decrease barakah from our marriage. Should I just learn from my mistakes and move on from this situation? So this is a really important question and it's actually a common question because it happens quite too frequently. A person meets a young lady or a young lady meets a young man and there develops an interest between the two of them and as they get to know each other before the marriage happens they may get involved in inappropriate behavior anything short of actual fornication and this person is wondering basically should they just learn from the experience and move on or should they give up on this marriage prospect considering that maybe they've ruined it or it will decrease the, decrease the barakah and it is true that there are things that we may do that decrease barakah in our life this is called mahqul barakah the erasure or the effacement of barakah from our lives whether it's in our time our wealth our actions uh, tawfiq facilitation in decisions that we want to make and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala reminds us in the Qur'an to be very critical with ourselves and look to ourselves as the source of our problems. When things go bad in our life, to look at the role we may have played in those problems. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tells us in the Qur'an, وَمَا أَصَابَكُمْ مِنْ مُصِيبَةٍ فَبِمَا كَسَبَتْ أَيْدِيكُمْ that what afflicts you of misfortune is due to what your own hands have wrought, what your own hands have earned. So sometimes we lose barakah in our life because of what we've done. And what we're experiencing of a lack of barakah is a consequence of what we've done. If we can recognize that, we, we experience that palpable diminishment of barakah. And if we can recognize that and that it's our fault, something we did, and this is a consequence, then we can make tawbah. We can make the necessary changes so that Allah opens the doors of barakah for us again. And we have to take that into consideration. So what are those things that cause a diminishment in barakah? There's a number of things, but at the top of that list is generally ma'asiyah, disobedience to Allah sins, things that are haram, that we shouldn't be doing, that we get involved in. So if you look at the barakat that we have in our life, whether it is in the form of health, 
or wealth, well-being, blessings in time, blessings in family, blessings in school or work, whatever it is. If you look at barakah, you'll see that it has external causes, right? The things that we do, the state that we bring to our actions in our life can be a cause for increase in barakah. Likewise, the removal of barakah can have causes. And chief of these causes is ma'asiyah, disobedience to Allah and sins. Allah Ta'ala tells us in the Qur'an about this connection between our actions and the barakat that we receive. He says in Surah Al-A'raf, وَلَوْ أَنَّ أَهْلُ الْقُرَىٰ آمَنُوا وَاتَّقَوْا لَفَتَحْنَا عَلَيْهِمْ بَرَكَاتٍ مِنَ السَّمَاءِ وَالْأَرْضِ وَلَكِنْ كَذَّبُوا فَأَخَذْنَاهُمْ بِمَا كَانُوا يَكْسِبُونَ Allah says that if only the people of the towns had believed and exercised taqwa, we would have opened up for them the barakat from the heavens and the earth. However, they denied, and so we seized them, took them to task due to what they earned, what they did with their own hands. So barakat come from the heavens and the earth. When we have iman and taqwa, when you have the real IT, the real IT professional is iman and taqwa. When you have the IT, the iman and the taqwa, you receive the barakat from the heavens and from the earth. So from the sky and from what grows. So this implies that if you disbelieve and deny, then you're denied barakat. So that applies to sins as well. And the Prophet sallallahu tells us in a very clear hadith, إِنَّ الْعَبْدِ لَا يُحْرَمُ الرِّسْقِ بِذَنْبٍ يُصِيبُهُ Indeed, he says, a servant is denied provision, risk, due to a sin that has afflicted him, a sin that he's struggling with. So it is a possibility that this individual asking the question has engaged in some haram less than zina with his, whether he wants to consider her uh, fiancé, whatever she is, it's a possibility that barakah has decreased due to the haram that they were engaged in. But how does he move forward? This is where the question has to be personal and behind the scenes. I can't give the specific advice to this person without knowing the specific details. But all things considered, both parties should make tawbah. Whatever it is they did, it's between them and Allah. But both parties should make tawbah, and both parties, the man and the woman, should avoid the causes that led them to that haram in the first place. And most of these causes, most of the things that lead to that is khalwa, is uh, basically being alone with that person, being alone with them. This is, this is haram. Khalwa is haram. Another cause that leads into the haram and leads to a diminishment of barakah is inappropriate communication, especially online. And we say to people that if you are getting to know someone as a potential spouse online, and it's a distant relationship, so to speak, where you, they're not living near you and you're talking to them through email or text, you have to be very, very careful in how you carry out that communication. And it should be supervised, ideally. And if you are communicating with this person to get to know them and see if they are a suitable match for you, 
Once you have determined that this is someone you want to marry, and you've proposed and they've accepted and the family is behind it, it's at that point that you should really cut off communication beyond the details of the marriage arrangement itself. It should just be business only. So like once you know this person, okay, there's chemistry. Okay, we can see this working. I've proposed, they accepted, the families are all together in this. At that point, the only communication between you and her should be what venue are we going to pick for the wedding? You know, what color flowers do you want uh, on the tables? You know, where do you want your family to sit? It shouldn't be uh, communication as if you're already married. And this is what happens a lot. It, this has happened so many times. I can't even count how many times I've interacted with people who had this problem. They decide to get married. And instead of limiting the communication at that point until they get married, they carry on the conversation online, on, on, on WhatsApp or email or a phone or whatever. And then they just start talking to each other as if they're already married. And then they get into inappropriate conversations, conversations that are completely appropriate, completely halal once you're married, but they're absolutely haram before you're married because they develop the feelings and they just interact with each other as if it's already happened. This causes a decrease in barakah, no doubt. So the solution, it could be to get out of the situation. Or it could be to make istikhara about moving forward. But either way, both need to make tawbah, whether they decide to go ahead with the marriage or wait or move on to something else. So for the specifics, I can't give advice. But for the general advice, it applies to all people at all times, is make tawbah and don't do it again. Wallahu a'lam. All right. <coughs> Next question. Does looking at an inappropriate scene unintentionally on TV or in real life make wudu makru. I think the questioner meant to say mustahab because otherwise it doesn't make any sense. They're asking, I'm guessing here, that if you watch something on television or online that is inappropriate or you see an inappropriate scene unintentionally, is it recommended to make wudu? It's a good question. But it could be that they had wudu and does it break it? Does it break? Okay, we'll answer both of those. Does looking at something inappropriate, when we say inappropriate here, what, let's define what we mean. I presume what they mean is looking at the aura of someone that is not, uh, that, that they cannot look at, Right? And there's levels to that. And we'll come back to that in the final question. That in itself doesn't break wudu. Doesn't break the wudu. Should you make wudu if that happened? Like you're watching a show and, you know, a scene comes on. Should you make wudu? Well, you could. Because we know that making wudu, one of the effects of the wudu is that it wipes away, washes away the effects of the sagha'ir, the minor sins that accrue from those that come through the ears, from hearing, and from the eyes, and from the mouth, and so on. So by a person making wudu, they are washing away the effects of some of these sins. So from that perspective, you could say that 
if you see a scene like that intentionally or unintentionally, you can make wudu and inshallah that would wipe away the effects. Uh, but it shouldn't be some planned activity where you say, you know, I'm going to watch this and then make wudu after. That's, that's, a, that's another problem because there's this istighfaf, uh, you know, belittlement of the offense, which is a sin in its own right. So the quick answer is, yes, you can make wudu. And if the question is about it being makru, to, uh, it, does looking at an appropriate scene uh, on TV or in real life make wudu uh, makru? How are you saying that? <laughs> I mean, it's if you have wudu and you look at it, and you have to, let's say, pray. But see, karaha doesn't apply to something that's yeah. hasil, that's already happened. Yeah. Yeah, I guess, yeah, that's, that, that's probably the only way to look at it. So not makru as a hukum shar'i, a legal ruling, but is it something that breaks the wudu? Yeah, that, it doesn't break the wudu, no. <laughs> okay, so the next question. Uh, this one says, Assalamu alaikum. My question is, can women sit in the masjid prayer area during their period? If not, then what about those sisters who teach in the Sunday school and their classes are in the upstairs prayer area? Well, we know this question is coming from someone here. They, they, they know the layout of the building. So let's begin with the words of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in Surah An-Nisa. Allah ta'ala tells us in this chapter, Ya ayyuhalladheena amanu, la taqarabu salata wa antum sukara hatta ta'lamu ma taqulun. In this verse, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tells us, O oh, you who believe, do not approach prayer while you are intoxicated until you know what you are saying. Or if you are in a state of janaba, of ritual impurity, major impurity, except those who are passing through a place of prayer, until you have washed your whole body, the ghusl. So the general rule, according to all four of the four madahib in Islamic law, the general rule is that when a Muslim woman is on her monthly period, she should not enter or visit the musalla area. But we want to make a distinction between the musalla and the general social areas that are not considered the musalla in a masjid because many of the modern day masajid are built where there is a musalla it's a single building but in that single building you have a musalla area that is dedicated to the salat then you have other areas such as the hallways such as classrooms such as a social hall such as the restroom area we don't say that the restroom area is a part of the musalla you wouldn't go into the toilet and pray there even though it's physically attached to this building, it's in this structure, that's not the musalla. What area can a, must a woman not uh, go to and pray or sit in? According to the four madahib, that would be the musalla area in particular, not the other areas. So let's clarify this. So, what can she do? <coughs> well, the verse mentions, except one passing through. So a person could pass from one door to another for a need. There's a basis for that. But not going in and sitting down in the musalla during her period. And the same applies to a man. If 
they were in a state of janaba. They wouldn't be able to do it, sit either. Now, here's where we come into this conversation of the legal rationale for the ruling as it was understood in the past and modern developments in feminine hygiene products and whether this latter development changes the ruling in the present day, right? Because there are some people who say that because uh, the initial reason why it was prohibited for women to enter the masjid during their period is because of cleanliness and the lack of feminine hygiene products, we have those today. And so the issue of the purity of the place of prayer is no longer a concern. Therefore, it would be allowed for women to come into the masjid uh, during their monthly cycle uh, and sit and do whatever they would need to do. This is the position of some people. Some people argue that. However, (coughs) you know, and I understand that reasoning, but I still advocate for people to stick to the standard and relied upon views within the four legal schools because this is always the safest position. However, in those legal schools, sometimes you may find some leeway, right? And if you're taking the statement of a mufti that gives you some leeway and they give you a position within one of the schools that's more lenient, of course you could take that, right? There is a position in the Shafi'i school, for instance, from Al-Imam Al-Muzani, who is a heavyweight in the madhab, and he allowed for that in the condition that the, the woman guarantees purity and she has something protecting uh, the, her, the, the masjid or musalla area from having getting blood, right? He had that position. It is a qawl in the madhab. It's not the, the mu'tamad. It's not the relied upon position in the school, but it is a position. And I'm not a mufti, so I can't give you a fatwa, whoever's asking this question, to say, take that. But if you decide to follow qualified scholarship that gives you that ruling, it exists. And so it's not for anyone to really condemn you if you feel there is a legitimate need and you've taken these precautions and this is a position that you wish to take from a qualified authority. So it's not really, it's, it's a half answer, right? But I'm not going to give you the fatwa to go against the standard view in the four schools and just come in during your period. But I will say that that position exists if you choose to take it. And that's between you and your Lord. And fattaqullah mastata'atum. You know, have as much taqwa of Allah as you can. So the Sunday school issue where classes are such that they are not in the main area where the prayer usually occurs, but they are still attached. If they're attached, but they are separated by this, this, these doors, and that's the general, is the general understanding is that this is not the musalla area, but it could be if we had space issues, if we were facing overcrowding. That would be no different from opening up the social hall, which is not the musalla, but people pray there for when there's a need. So if, you, if, if it's understood like that, then we have some leeway. Yeah. And you can escape this khilaf. You can escape this issue and not need to take the position of al-Muzani and you stay within the confines of the mashhur from within the four schools. <coughs> Wallahu a'lam. Okay, the next question is a very long question. It's about a page and a half. 
So I'm, I'm tempted to just go straight to the answer. But I, I like the way the question was written. So I think reading the question itself is a dars on how to write a question and how to think about issues. So pay attention to this one. The questioner says, Assalamu alaikum. I have made the mistake of delving into religious matters without a guide or teacher, and now I am confused. That's a, that's a good place to be, to just recognize I have gone in over my head and I need to stop and figure things out by consulting with people who know. Because a lot of people go straight in and they never make that realization. So he's in a good place right now. He says, I'm looking for clarification and guidance in these matters. What I would like to know is this. Who must the ties of kinship be upheld slash maintained with? So this, is, this whole question is about Siratul Rahim, right? Uh, maintaining family ties. So he says, I have found three different positions from online media, but I cannot cite any evidence. One group says that it must be maintained with just the mahrams or close family members, such as a mother, father, siblings, uncles, aunts. Another group says that it must be upheld with every person that inherits from you. The third group says that it must be all of our family members, anyone considered a part of our family. I am a nobody, so my opinion is worthless. But I will say that I find the last two positions to be extremely difficult to follow and one that I cannot agree with. I love his honesty from the beginning to here. How can the ties of kinship be maintained with every person we are related to? That must be all of humanity. <laughs> yeah. I wish to follow the first position, which is that the ties must be upheld with only our mahrams. And on the topic of mahram, who are my mahram? <laughs> are my nieces and nephews my mahram as well? In addition, since I am but a layman and, am, and, and, and I am in no need of evidence, so I'd just like to ask if the first position is acceptable and allowed for me to follow. I'd also like to ask how I can maintain my ties of kinship. I would like to contact my mahram relatives on the two Eids by phone and my closer relatives more often than that. Is this permissible? I've also read that financial support of my relatives other than my descendants and parents slash grandparents is recommended, not obligatory. Is this correct? Does it suffice me to have no contact with my cousins male or female, and can I simply ask about them? Or must I receive their contact information as well? And what about second or third cousins, un uncles and aunts of my parents, or the children of my cousins? Am I going to an extreme by going in so deep on these matters? Are my ties of kinship severed because I haven't phoned certain family members in many years? The last time I have seen some of my family members was when I was young, when I visited my home country, I am afraid and unsure of what to do. Please provide me with guidance and support. And this is coming from New Jersey, not someone from here. So this is a very detailed question. And 
I would like to commend this questioner, and I'm looking right at the camera here. I'd like to commend you for putting so much thought into these questions because it shows a commitment to seek knowledge on how to fulfill the command of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. That is commendable. So I want to give you a good answer. You've kind of answered some of those questions yourself. So let's just unpack this a little bit. And I think this question applies to a lot of people. So in our Islamic lexicon, our dictionary of Islamic terms, we have terms like Siratul Rahim, which is maintaining family ties. We have Qat'ul Rahim, severing family ties. We have Birrul Waridain, filial piety, being good to your parents. And the opposite of that, which is Uquq, which is uh, being disrespectful or uh, rude or harming your parents or your family. So, <coughs> the general hukum in the Sharia is that Siratul Rahim, maintaining family ties, is wajib, and cutting family ties is haram, a major sin at that, not a minor sin. But when we talk about the practical applications of this sila, this keeping of family ties, and what counts as cutting the family ties, we find that there are different definitions. So let's look at the words of one of the great imams of our tradition, Al-Imam Qadir Iyad, rahimahullah. Imam Qadir Iyad, he says that there is no difference of opinion among scholars that Siratul Rahim, maintaining family ties, is wajib fil jumla, in a general sense, and that cutting ties is a kabira, a major sin. However, he says, this maintaining of family ties has levels, darajat, and some of these levels surpass others. He says that the lowest level of Siratul Rahim, maintaining family ties, is avoiding uh, fighting. <laughs> Basically, the bar is so low. Just don't fight them, right? That's the lowest level. He says this, the, the least of it is avoiding that, and as well as just giving them salams. Just give them salams, you've maintained family ties at the lowest level. And the Prophet says in a hadith, Keep your family ties, walaw bis salam, even if it's only by salamu alaikum. So that's the lowest level. So in general, it's wajib, but the specifics and who counts as the rahim, who doesn't, that's where we get into the details. So who are those family members that you have to keep ties with and are forbidden from severing? So there's two categories. The fuqaha mentioned two categories. Those with whom connection is wajib and those with whom connection is recommended, mustahab. So <coughs> let's look at this. And this is where I wished I had brought a, a dry erase board. This is one of those charts you can draw. So you have wajib and mustahab, right? And this goes back to the type of rahim we're talking about, the type of family relations we're talking about. So every person who has a family is going to have people in the family that are mahram and those in the family that are ghayru mahram, right? 
So who's mahram? Your mother, right? Your siblings, right? What about your aunt and uncle? Yeah? What about your cousins? Cousins are not mahram. Cousins are not mahram. So male, uh, female cousins have to cover in front of their male cousins. They cannot be in khalwa with their male cousins because, why? They could get married. They're, they're not mahram, but they're family. So this is غير mahram, as opposed to mahram who you could never get married to no matter what. So they're unmarried, unmarriageable kin. So if they are mahram, unmarriageable kin, mothers, fathers, brothers, sisters, grandparents, aunts and uncles, then it is wajib on you to maintain family ties. Others among the fuqaha, like Qadr Iyad, they say that it's wajib to keep family ties with anyone from whom you could inherit, even if they're not mahram. So the questioner mentions that. right? He mentions the inheritance issue. That is a position. The Maliki view is that Silatul Rahim, keeping family ties, is wajib for all relatives in general, mahram and ghair mahram. That means that if you cut your family ties with your cousin without a legitimate shari reason, it's a major sin. But some fuqaha said no. The sin of severing ties is only if they are mahram. If they are ghair mahram, it's not sinful. That is a position. <coughs> they say that for the, non, the non-mahram, it will be recommended to keep family ties, but not wajib. That's the second view. And this is the dominant position in the school of Imam Abu Hanifa. And this is actually the minority view, because when you look at the four madahib, the Madiki school, the Shafi'i school, and the Hanbali school, they are closer to saying that Sayyid al-Rahim is wajib for mahram and non-mahram. It's the Hanafi school that's saying that it's for mahram only, not ghair mahram, for whom it's mustahab, but not wajib. Imam Ibn Hajar al-Haytami, was a great Shafi'i scholar. He mentions in his Al-Fatawa Al-Hadithiyah, he says, Al-Muradu bil-Arhami al-Ladheena yata'akkadu birruhum wa tahrumu qati'atuhum jami'u al-Aqarib min jihat al-Ab aw al-Um wa inba'udu. He says that what is meant by the Arham or the relatives that you must be good towards and that you cannot sever, whose relations you cannot sever, are all of the relatives from the side of the father and the side of the mother, even if they're distant, so even cousins, right? So that's the position that says, mahram or ghair mahram, they are family, and you cannot cut family ties with them, right? So the questioner is asking, can he take the other position? You know, if, if you take a fatwa from a mufti and they say, sure, you know, your job as a lay person is just to seek a fatwa from an alim mufti, right? If they say, sure, take that, right? You've done your duty. But I suggest that you extend it further to your cousins, but just think about how you can keep those ties of relations and what that looks like. Because we talk about keeping family ties. What does that actually mean? What does that even look like? What does it look like to maintain family ties? Does it look the same in every place, every culture, and every time? No. The ulama say that there is a dhabit, or you could say a guideline, that determines 
what counts as maintaining family ties, and what counts as severing family ties. And that guideline is by the urf of the family or the locality, right? That's going to differ from place to place in different parts of the world. And even in one single part of the world, there may be multiple cultures and subcultures that have their own way of maintaining family ties. So I can put this question out. I think we did it before. Uh, how often can you go without talking to your parents? How long can you go without calling them or visiting them? Before they're angry with you. Hmm? You, you said every day? No. His is this. Oh, okay. No, go Okay. Like your, your, your mother or your father, how long can you go without talking to them before they get upset with you for not calling? Yes. You, you, call, you talk to them so much you don't even know. <laughs> you haven't tried. They live with you. Okay. Okay. What about you, Umar? Okay. Allah yarhamuhum. What about yourself? A few days. What about you? Two days. Okay. Allah yarham. Allah yarham al walidin. WhatsApp, phone calls, FaceTime. Before. What I'm saying is that <coughs> culturally speaking, if you go, let's say you go a week, they would think something's wrong. They will be bothered. They will be upset by that. But in this culture, it varies wildly, right? There are some people where the children need to call the parents once a week. For some, it's once a month. For some, it's every couple of months. It's just the way it is, right? Just the culture. So in a culture where there's a lot of independence, where the children go out really far away and they don't keep in contact every single week, but every few weeks, and that's normal. If they only talk every few weeks, they're still maintaining family ties. But if they were to go beyond that to the point where it feels like they're severing the ties, that would be a major sin. But if you were to spend the same amount of time without calling your parents, you would be cutting family ties. So it's culturally specific. It's determined by the orf of the people, right? So the person's asking what counts as Siratul Rahim or how long, it, it, it depends on your own culture, right? Al-Adam Custom has the weight of law, right? So it's going to differ. Now, one of the questions that come up, and he didn't address it directly, but I feel it in the question, is the idea of having to keep family ties with people, relatives you don't like. Those annoying cousins or those annoying uncles or aunts and you don't like them and when they come over you don't want to see them but you have to and you have to put on a smile what do you do with those people do you have to keep family ties with people you don't like from your family you do because the command in the quran and in the sunnah for silat rahim is a general command the general text will remain general because there's nothing to specify 
that it's only for the good relatives that you like. In fact, we have a hadith which says the exact opposite. We have the hadith of Sayyida Asma bint Abi Bakr radiallahu anha. She was going to receive her mother on a visit. And her mother at the time was a mushrika, an idol worshiper. So Sayyida Asma bint Abi Bakr radiallahu anha, she goes to the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam and asks him, should I maintain family ties with her? And the Prophet ﷺ says, Naam, Sili Ummak. He said, Yes, keep the ties with your mother. Now, how is this hadith relevant? It's relevant because the mother at the time was an idol worshiper, and shirk is the greatest crime, the greatest sin a person could ever commit. So if the Prophet ﷺ tells her to keep family ties with her, even though she is a mushrika, then Mimbabi Aula, even more so, you would have to keep ties with those relatives who do things that are less than shirk. Of course, you have to be careful, and sometimes you need to establish boundaries if there's problems that have existed in the past. We're not talking about those specific cases. But you, in general, keep family ties even with those people you don't like. And how do you do that? The lowest level is to give salams and not fight them, as Qadir Iyad mentions. Other forms would include visiting them, in a manner and a timing that is consistent with the cultural norms of your people. It could also include sitting with them, smiling, giving them gifts, giving, uh, calling them on the phone at opportune times that are customary. It could be emailing them, it could be texting them, it could be messaging them on a WhatsApp from time to time, just checking in, right? It could be giving them invitations to parties or gatherings. It could be visiting them when they're sick and checking in on them and bringing them some food. It could also mean attending their janazah after they've passed away. That's a part of Surah Al-Rahm. It doesn't end at death. It continues after death as well. So you attend the janazah, you make dua for them, and when needed, you spend money on them. But the questioner is asking about spending money. That's only obligatory on your dependents, those who depend on you. Those of the family who are not your dependents, you're not uh, charged in the sharia with providing for them. But it's recommended to help them out if you can, for sure. So, <coughs> uh, what is qatr? What does it mean to do the opposite of this? What does it mean? If we say silat al-rahim is maintaining family ties, what does it mean to cut family ties? What does that look like? And what counts as the most m- uh, minimum form We've already determined that the lowest level of keeping family ties is not fighting them and giving salams. It's a pretty low bar. You know, you're not going to smack them and you're just going to give them salams. That's it. So what counts as qat rahim the bare minimum? Well, the ulama differ about this. Uh, one of the great imams, Imam al-Hafiz Zainuddin al-Iraqi, he says it is bid-isa'a, by generally bad treatment. And others said it is by leaving good treatment towards them. So what the scholars note is that this is a binary, that it, you are either maintaining family ties or you're cutting family ties. It's a binary. There is no gray area in between the two where you're neither keeping family ties or severing them. And... Basically, 
if you keep the peace with those relatives you don't really like and you swallow your pride and just give them salams, especially if they're older than you and you don't treat them badly, then you are keeping the family ties and you're not severing them. If there is an abusive relative and you have to establish boundaries, by all means you must do so. But you have to bear in mind the rights of the arham, right? The rights of the family ties. Now the worst form of qata' is towards one's parents. After that would be the maharam, the close relatives, and then the ghair maharam, cutting ties with them. So there's levels of severity. The worst would be cutting ties with one's parents, cutting off communication altogether. After that would be, of course, the siblings, and then the, or uncles and aunts, and then the cousins, if you include the non-maharam among the types that have to be maintained. So any bad treatment, enmity, backbiting, fighting, lying, slander, theft, uh, stealing their property and farmland back home, and all that stuff that people fight over, that's what severs family ties more faster than anything else. Fights over property, money, and inheritance. Bad blood is created because people cannot stay out of the pocket of their relative, and it spoils the relationship. So there's that kind of qata', then there's the kind of qata' which is just neglect, where you leave off keeping the family ties according to their orf, your custom, the customs of your people. So <coughs> basically, this individual is seeking to get a proper demarcation of who counts as the family he has to keep ties with. So I would say to him, keep ties with them all, and if it's just reaching out from time to time, right, according to the customs of your people, just reach out. And that doesn't mean that you have to be visiting them every week and all of this and that. And especially if there's bad blood or problems, you need to set boundaries. Set boundaries, maintaining the bare minimum of the family ties. And, you know, and sometimes people have very specific problems, very specific situations that can't be answered in a general question like this. So if you have a, a specific problem needs a specific answer, then you need to go to a scholar to help you navigate through that. Wallahu subhanahu wa ta'ala a'lam. Could it still have, I mean, is there a two-way thing or one-way? What's that? Yeah, it's reciprocal. They have to keep ties with you as well. Yeah, so it's not just you calling, right? However, let's clarify that there is a relationship of the adana to the a'la, right? So the son and the daughter are the ones who should be going out of their way to reach out to the parents, not the other way around. But they're still keeping ties with you. So the siblings, that's where there's more, it's more of an equal playing field. It shouldn't just be you reaching out and they, if, if, and if you don't, they'll never call you. That's on them. That's on them. You're not responsible for what they do. You're only responsible for what you do. So as long as you reach out, you've done your duty to keep family ties. If they neglect that and they only receive the phone calls or receive the visits and they don't go out of their way to visit you, well, the family ties are still maintained. We don't want to say they're sinful. But if you stopped and they never bothered to check in on you, that's on them. Yeah, Allah. Hey, exactly, the hadith that mentions the one who 
goes out of their way to keep family ties is not equal to the one who uh, just reciprocates. You know, that means the one who reciprocates is, is always the second party, right? You know, if I, if I go and give you a gift, I've, I think of it myself. I think, oh, you know, Omer, he really loves this perfume. I'm going to go to Abdul Samad Qureshi, buy this nice fancy perfume, and I'm going to bring it to him. And, you know, he's never brought me a perfume, hint, hint. And he's never said anything. He never brought one to me. But I, of my own accord, I go out of my way and I bring it. And before that, you never brought me a perfume. But now you feel a little guilty. And you go to Abdul Samad, you get another perfume and you bring it. You're giving a gift too, but this is mukafa'a. It's kind of a reciprocity. So the first one to do that is better than the one who only does it because they're reciprocating what someone else did, right? And the same thing goes for family relations. If you're the one going out of your way and they don't, you have the higher status. You have the greater reward with Allah, right? Even if they are keeping family ties with you, they're the second party. They're only they're responding to you. So, <coughs> you should be good to your in-laws, <laughs> but, uh, but, but Sharan, but, but they're not the same as your own mother and father in terms of uh, not reaching out to them, right? And one of the proofs for that is that if a person was to get divorced, are they going to be, I mean, some people would. Right? There are some people who do have really good relationships with their in-laws. And if that family member, the, the, the husband or the wife dies or there's a divorce, sometimes even a divorce, that ex will still sometimes talk to the in-laws, the mother and father of their ex. It's rare, but it happens. But most of the time, it doesn't. You know, most of the times, a person gets divorced, they're never going to see or talk to the in-laws again unless it's in a, a courtroom. You know, battling it out over custody or whatever. So it's not the same. But you have to, you know, maintain adab because if you don't have peace with the in-laws, it creates friction in the home. And a part of picking the right spouse is to pick the right in-laws. So just as much as you're interviewing the potential spouse, you're interviewing the potential father and mother-in-law. You want to observe their relationship to see how they are because that will reflect something of what the potential spouse has imbibed in the household. And that's going to carry over into your house. But that's a different topic. All right. Last question. Assalamu alaikum. What is the awrah for men in the Madiki madhab? Context. I'm not a Madiki. However, I always hear Hanafis or Shafi'is claim that men can wear shorts above the knee because Imam Madik allowed it or something along those lines. Even when it comes to soccer, they say we can watch players even though their thighs are exposed due to the Madiki opinion. Well, in case you didn't know, the, the legal school that I've studied and I personally practice in 98% of the issues in my life. It is the school of Imam Mudar al-Hijra, Imam Malik ibn Anas radiallahu anhu. So this question 
This question is what I would call tabloid fiqh. This is what we call tabloid fiqh. You know the tabloid magazines and newspapers when you go to the checkout line? The, the alien baby spotted in Las Vegas, right? Tabloid stuff. It's just tabloid issues people pick up on. And they think, oh, well, that's what the Madikis say, therefore they run with it. And you can see that in the question. They say, I'm not Madiki, however, I always hear Hanafis and Shafis claim that men can wear shorts above their knees because Imam Madik allowed it or something along those lines. So let us clarify this issue a little bit. In the school of Imam Madik, the Aura is of two types. There is the Aura or the nakedness outside of the Salat, and then there is the Aura inside of the salat. What is the aura of men outside of salat in the Madiki Madhab? The bare minimum. It is from the navel to the knee. However, the knee here is defined as the top of the knee. The top of the kneecap. So from the navel to the top of the kneecap. Everything in between is aura outside of salat. So, where's the thigh? Is it above or below the top of the kneecap? It's above. It's above the kneecap. So that mean, does that mean the thigh is aura or not aura? It's included. It's included. So where are they getting this madiki thigh aura business? I'll tell you where they're getting it from. <laughs> yes, they're getting it from the internet. <laughs> But they're getting it from the internet in a confused reading of Madiki fiqh. Okay? So the aura outside of salat for men, bare minimum, is minasurati ila rukba, right? From the navel to the knee. And the rukba is defined as the, the upper limit. Ila rukba, meaning ila taraf al rukba, to the edge, not encompassing the entire knee. The other schools would include the entire kneecap. See, this is where the difference is. So the Madikis are lenient to that extent, that the kneecap itself is not aura, but everything above it is. So that is the aura outside of Salat. The aura inside of Salat is a little bit different. This is very refined legal language. Inside of the Salat, for men, the aura is of two types. So that gives us a total of three, right? So, but in Salat, there's two types of Aura for men. Al-Auratul Mukhaffafa, the light Aura, and the Aura, Al-Aura Al-Mughallada, the heavy Aura. What is the difference? Well, what are they first and what's the difference? The heavy Aura for men in Salat would be the penis, the testicles, and the back of the rectum, the anus. Very precise anatomical locations. And the light aura would be everything else from the, the general area of the aura that we talked about just now. Why do they make this distinction? Because they say in, in the school of Imam Madik, if you are praying and your light aura is uncovered, whether accidentally or on purpose, 
you are recommend, it's recommended for you to pray over again, but you don't have to. Your prayer would still be valid. But if the heavy awrah was uncovered, accidentally, forgetfully, on purpose, whatever, no matter what, you'd have to pray over again regardless. That doesn't mean it's halal for you to expose your awrah in salat. It just means the salat is valid even though you did something that is unlawful. So to simplify this, I'll give you an, uh, another example. What's the ruling for men wearing gold jewelry? It's haram for men. What if a person comes to salat and they wear a gold ring? A man wears a gold ring and they enter the salat. Allahu Akbar. Is the prayer valid? Is valid. Were they doing something haram while they were in salat? Yes, they're wearing a gold ring. So a person can be doing something haram while in prayer, even though the prayer is still valid. Likewise, in this case, a person could expose their awrah, even though the prayer is still valid. What, what amount of the awrah could be exposed where the prayer is still valid? It will be the light awrah. What area of the awrah could be exposed accidentally or purposely, but it still invalidates the prayer? The heavy awrah. So some people read this, these texts and they say, okay, well, the light awrah is, you know, if it's uncovered, you know, the thighs. And they say, oh, okay, so this is a carte blanche. This is, uh, oh, we can, we can wear short shorts. We can wear soccer shorts. And <coughs> I mean, we have to be honest. Yes, there, there is a position that the thigh isn't awrah, but that's not the Madiki position itself. Right? The Madiki position is that the thigh is awrah. It's just that if the thigh is exposed in salat by accident or on purpose, even if that could be sinful or makruh, depending on how it happens, the prayer is still valid. And they don't have to repeat it, although it's recommended. Now, is the thigh awrah? In the four madahib, the thigh is considered awrah. The only exception is one riwayah, one narration from Imam Ahmed, because often he has multiple positions on a single issue. So there becomes the mashhur or the dominant position of the school, but then there's a secondary position or a third position related in the school that's attributed to the Imam. There is a second position attributed to Imam Ahmed in which he considers the thigh to not be awrah. And there's some evidence for this because well, there's a hadith, right? And it's reconciled as another hadith that forbids uncovering the awrah, that calls it awrah. And so some of the scholars wrestled with how you reconcile between these two. That is the, the sha'an of the mujtahidun. That's the affair of the <coughs> scholars at the higher levels of ijtihad. But for the basic position, the thai is awrah. But if it's uncovered in salat, in the Madiki school, the prayer is still valid. Does that mean a person can wear soccer shorts and play soccer? You know, at the most, we would say that what they're doing is makru, or it could be haram, and at least it's makru, right? And if someone, you know, this is one of those areas where the more you dive deeper into the fiqh, the, the more easygoing you become, because there is a time and a place to command the good and forbid the evil. But if you find a way out for people, and you say, okay, 
Like there was a person who just became a Muslim a couple weeks ago, very well-known person on social media, and they have a lot of attention. And they appeared as a brand new Muslim, and they're greeting some Muslim person, and they have these really short shorts. And these Muslims on social media saying to this brand new Muslim, but Muslim two days, Astaghfirullah ya You know, you're uncovering your aura. This is haram. I can look at that position, that situation and say, this is a brand new Muslim. He doesn't know, number one. And number two, I can say, maybe he takes that second position of Imam Ahmad. Even if he does, who am I to condemn him? I can give nasiha, but I can't condemn. So, you know, there's, there's levels to this stuff. There's levels to it. So you, in your own personal practice, don't uncover your thigh. But if you see someone out there, understand there's a little bit of scope for being a little gentler and easygoing with them. And you don't run up to them and say, Ittaqillah, what's wrong with you? You know, there's a time and place for all of that. But you have to know what you're talking about and, you know, advise people with some wisdom, inshallah ta'ala. And this also highlights the importance of not taking your deen from the internet, especially when you have these articles that compare positions. They say, oh yeah, the Madikis, they allow it, and the Shafis allow this and that, and okay, where? Right, I, I saw someone talking about this online. They said, yes, the Madikis, they allow it. Uh, Imam Ibn Abi Zayd in his Risada, he says that the thigh is uh, not from the aura. It's not in the Risada. <laughs> the Risada says no such thing at all. Someone just made that up. I don't know where they got that from. And, you know, it is what it is. Don't take your deen from the internet unless it's a very reliable source that's been checked. Uh, and even then, double check because, you know, people get things wrong. You know, it's good to have double, uh, you know, the peer review process is important, right? You know, if you find a human being, <laughs> you know, <laughs> find a human being and, and double check. Um, yeah, wallahu a'lam. Wa sallallahu wa sallam ala Sayyidina Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa sallam.